Welcome to Long Thoughts with Baloo, a podcast dedicated to creators and their stories. Your host, Baloo, asks creative folks to share their lives and goals. Stay a while and listen. So my guest today is a little different. He's a pod he's a fellow podcast host. He's Vegito EX from Consenju.com, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, Dragon Ball Z, Dragon Ball Super franchise sites I've ever seen in my whole life. That's me. Pretty much my whole life. Oh, really? <laughs> Pretty close to it. Yeah. So it's really cool to get to talk to him. Oh, I well, appreciate it. Vegito EX, how are you today? I am great. You can just call me Mike. I mean, my, my screen name dates back to actually 1997, and uh, it, it's a badge of honor at this point. I refuse to get rid of it, but you can just call me Mike. That's fine. Mike it is. Please don't. It's a cool name. Vegito is one of my favorite characters. All right, so the story behind it is when I was whatever age I was 20 years ago, I wanted to have a screen name that represented the strongest character in the series. And then I really liked Street Fighter EX. I just combined the two and that's how it came to be. It's, it's, it's not that exciting a story. I don't know if I've played Street Fighter EX. Then again, I'm not really a Street Fighter guy. Uh, it was good for the day. It was good for the day. I stand by it. A lot of old games good for the day. Yeah, that's true. So we were talking before the show and we were going to do like a surface conversation about Sun Wukong and his story. Yeah, because I I mean, I've actually been listening to your show. I I enjoy your show quite a bit. I've heard so many cool interviews with cool people who actually have something to do (laughs) with the the written word. Uh, I mean, I run a website and I've written reviews and I write news and stuff, but I'm not so much on the creative side of things. So I I was really appreciative that you wanted to have me on the show, but I wanted to bring something uh, topical to the mix. And that's when it came to me like, oh, I do something with Dragon Ball, which is a Japanese comic book and cartoon series that has roots uh, very early on in uh, one of the great pieces of Chinese literature, Journey to the West, which, oh, by the way, has lots of poetry in it. There's my connection. Got it. A little bit, yeah. So how do you think Goku, where do you think Goku's strongest tie to Sun Wukong is? There's so many (laughs) very obvious surface level things. So just a a little bit of a background here. Uh, Dragon Ball is a story that began uh, very late 1984 by a guy in Japan called Akira Toriyama and started as a comic book. This was actually his next successful series. He was already rich. He was already famous in Japan for a series called Dr. Slump. And after Dr. Slump wrapped up, uh, he actually had wanted to end the series. And the only reason he got permission to end the series was that he agreed to do something else next. He wanted to do some kung fu stories, uh, and he actually did a couple little one-shots ahead of time that had a little bit of Journey to the West in there. Not so much. And then when he really redeveloped those initial concepts, he decided to go all in, sort of, with Journey to the West. So initially, Goku literally was, and we have early designs, a little monkey, exactly from Journey to the West. That had changed into a little boy with a tail, but it was there from the start. And he had an expanding staff and eventually he rode around on the cloud. It's very obvious the connections between Goku, which is actually just the Japanese reading of the Chinese name of Wukong. Uh, And he had friends along the way. One of them was a stand-in for a priest. One of them was also a pig that maybe had a rake in early designs and didn't really carry that through. But the parallels were definitely there. And it was a cool setup for a story, and he very quickly abandoned the obvious Journey to the West parallels. There are a couple things later on that um, both him and the TV animation team brought in from Journey to the West, but it was it was a great setup 
when did oh i don't even know how to pitch this question i've been following kanzai ju since before it was called that back nice. it was um oh which one was yours i don't remember now <laughs> so i a little bit more of a backstory so i started vegito ex's ultimate dbz links page in january 1998 that transitioned into something called vegito ex's homepage and that itself transitioned as i just kept changing what i was doing into a site called daizenshu ex which i then ran until 2012 uh, 98 to 20 2012. And in 2012, we merged with some other good friends who ran another website called Kanzentai. So Daizenshu and Kanzentai combined into Kanzenshu. Now, I could, I suppose I could just send people to the About Us page on your website for them to figure out what all those words mean. But <laughs> sure. you tell us, how did, why did those two words become Kanzenshu? What do they mean? Sure. So Daizenshu, I, I took Daizenshu and then added the EX for my screen name, but Daizenshu was a series of guidebooks for the Dragon Ball franchise in Japan. And there have since been many more guidebooks, but Daizenshu is, uh, Dai is large, big, Zen is kind of the all, and the Shu is the collection. I think I'm getting that all right. So they're, they're basically big encyclopedias. And then Kanzentai, that's a word that uh, Heath, who ran that site, used. He adopted that from one of the arcs in Dragon Ball. There's a character named Cell. Uh, later on, after he absorbs some other characters, he becomes Kanzentai Cell or Perfect Cell. So we had a very natural combination of those names where Dai Zen Shu, Kanzen Tai, it's actually the same Zen between the two. So we just naturally fused the two names together into uh, a completely original name that we made up for ourselves, which is wonderful for branding and SEO. It's like it's our word. Uh, and that's how Kanzen Shu came to be. So in the beginning, there was there was you, right? There was a, in the beginning there was a fan of the Dragon franchise, right? And now, twenty years later, there's this incredibly just exhaustive website with with details and polish and holy crap! I can't believe you have a life on top of that. <laughs> Where do you get the the motivation to to put you know put this much effort into being a fan? Like I'm a fan of DBZ, but not like you are. <laughs> right. Well, it, it's really I think inertia is the best way to describe it. We started small. I started very small. I started as a links page, and just over time, I casually added more and more to it. And I decided, oh well, I want to start reporting on news. Oh, I want to start documenting all of the CD releases for the series. And you start at that level. Twenty years later, you are naturally going to have well you're going to be the only one left still running a website <laughs> so the japanese language proficiency test is something that all of you have taken no so there are four of us uh right now there were two from daizenshu ex and two from kanzentai and we very perfectly fused because i had julian who actually lived in japan, went to japan twice i think and then lived there for an extended period of time and then over on kanzentai heath had jake who <laughs> went to japan and also learned the language on his own uh both julian and jake have passed the highest level of the japanese proficiency test they are as perfect <laughs> as you can probably get and i always i'm in awe of the work that they can do and do do. Uh, I don't think people realize how lucky the dragon, and I can say this not being one of those two people, I don't think fans realize how lucky they are to have Julian and Jake as their kind of like unofficial fandom translators. I was talking to a, a, fr a friend of mine 
the other day, and they said that uh, it's it's one thing to be a fan; it's it's quite another to immerse yourself in the culture enough to be able to translate stuff yourself. Yeah, it, it's a lot, and yes, Dragon Ball was the impetus for that. But I, I can speak more for Julian than I can for Jake, just because I've known Julian the longest amount of time. But Julian is a student of language more than anything else, and so that just happened to align perfectly with loving this show, falling in love with the show, falling in love with the original version of the show, and just all of his loves kind of combined in a neat little package there. And, and traditional, I like to say that, that uh, Daisenju, EX, and Kanzentai did, in true Dragon Ball Z fashion, they fused. Yes, <laughs> it was great. We had been joking about it for years. I think we, someone finally tracked down the first time we ever actually said Kanzenju, and it was years before we actually fused. And Heath and I had been joking off and on for a while, and then at some point, we, we kind of looked at each other like, we're not joking, are we? We're we're definitely going to do this, right? Yeah, yeah, of course we are. Well, let's let's just finally do this because even in our twenties, we were like, we're getting older. We're going to need each other's support. Now in our thirties, we're like, all right, we are older. <laughs> we need each other's support. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. It's um, we're we're so glad we did it at the exact right time too. Uh, there was a new movie that came out in Japan in 2013. We did our fusion in 2012. I think had we waited any longer, I don't know that we would have been able to do it. Which movie was that? That was uh, Battle of Gods when that first came out in Japan in 2013. Wonderful. I saw that one. I haven't, I don't actually think I've seen them all, but I've seen that one. Oh, okay. There's one or two Z films that I either don't recall or haven't seen. I can recall them all by villain and number and <laughs> ending theme. <laughs> it's a sad state of affairs up in my brain. What is your, I gotta ask, what is your favorite ending theme? Because there's so many. Oh, geez. Uh, we're talking just from movies, so ignoring the TV series. I really like the movie six closing theme that is the second Kula movie the metal Kula movie yeah uh, it's the the ending theme is you are the hero uh, and it's a duet between Hironobu Kakeyama and I want to say Kuko it's just uh <laughs> it's just a really really fun tune and hearing the two of them together is just a wonderful thing and it's got some uh great international adaptations as well I think that really helps it excellent I'll see if I can find a uh, like a link to a video or something and I'll put that in the the uh comments awesome the show that'd be pretty cool so before i just roll into full-on nerdity here yeah i wanted to roll back to the the odyssey to the west if you would you you mentioned previously that you had a snippet of a poem from that if you would read that so i feel like i can fulfill my poet quota that would be great oh yeah i mean how much i'm all about context and full understanding so why don't we jump back a little bit i actually have two poems i had four oh. i was going through them with my wife last night and i'm like these are the four i want to do and i was reading them all excited I'm like all right cut that one let's do these two so i got two that i'm gonna read for you from the same chapter but i, I do want to step back a little bit journey to the west so this is a 16th century chinese novel uh we we say it's attributed to rather than written by and my chinese pronunciation isn't as good as my japanese so ignore me here uh wu cheng en there's a little bit of debate over whether or not he actually wrote it when you get back to documentation of the era a little difficult as i said earlier it's one of the four great classical novels of chinese literature you have journey to the west then you also have water margin romance of the three kingdoms which i think most people have heard of and then the bastard child no one remembers 
remembers is Dream of the Red Chamber. And Journey to the West, it tells the story of a Buddhist monk. It's based on a real life person. Uh, his journey to India in search of sacred texts. Uh, and along the way, let's say he befriends uh, a small group of monsters slash deities that serve as his disciples and protectors along the way. Did, didn't he swear a vow of nonviolence so they kind of had to back him up all the time? Uh, yeah, he swore all sorts of things, <laughs> including being a vegetarian. So there's always uh, rough times in villages getting things to eat versus what his disciples want to do. Journey to the West, it's it's a hilarious story. It's a serious story. It's a political story. It's a religious story. It's kind of like the perfect novel <laughs> in all ways. And I think that's why it's uh, endured to the 21st century here. Excellent. That's a very great recap of it. There's a bit more you know, to it, obviously. There's, there's so much more to it. I, I just want to give you a little bit of my history with Journey to the West, because I think this this sets up the, the poetry a little bit. Uh, obviously, I'm a huge Dragon Ball fan, and I wanted to be familiar with the source material that served as its loose inspiration. So I bought the first volume of Anthony C. Yu's translation, which is four volumes. It's all 100 chapters unabridged. I first bought that in 2002. Uh, at the time, I found it completely impenetrable. Uh, that was in part due to the poetry. At the time, I felt like it just completely threw off the pacing of the narrative. It was it was just constant. It was that short attention span. I just want to know what happens next. I don't need a description of this flower for two pages. So at the time, I instead turned to Arthur Whaley's heavily abridged translation. Uh, I think it took me another two years before I finally read that, 2004. And that's what allowed me to really get the story, understand it, just get through it a little bit. It's a great introductory translation. It really cuts down on all the kind of like monster of the week stories and instead focuses on the human drama, the little human vignettes, if you will. And that, again, I really fell in love with it. And that pushed me back to use translation. And then I plowed through all four volumes over the span of, I think, two months after that point. Oh. And I ate it up. That is a dense book to burn through in two months. Yeah, that's a lot. I mean, it was like my lunch break. It was my after work. It was into the late evening. I mean, just loved it. So the way the chapters work is, I mean, it's just, it's a pulp novel. It's crude. It's hysterical. It's got all the serious stuff in it, too. <laughs> But I mean, I'm sorry, I love your description. That's great. Literally, we're talking about peeing in jars and throwing poop. Like this is what happens. Mon monkeys, of course. This is what happens in Journey to the West, among all the other stuff. Among the violence and the kill. Yeah. <laughs> right. So again, I'm, I promise I'm getting to the poems. I just want to read uh, a small snippet from Yu's introduction to his translation of Journey to the West. So he's giving a couple little brief examples of some, some of the poetry that he liked. And this is what he says. These three poems are but brief illustrations of the author's superb poetic eye and his uncanny ability to capture in a few lines the essential qualities of his subject. That subject may be a mosquito, a bee, a bat, a moth, an ant, a rabbit, or one of the numerous monsters with whom Tripitaka's disciples must engage in combat, or the battle itself, or the scenery of the different regions through which the pilgrims must pass. But what the reader meets again and again in these poems is an enthralling spectacle of exquisite details. Indeed, if judged by some of the traditional norms of Chinese lyric poetry, most of the poems in Journey to the West might be considered inferior products because of their graphic and, occasionally, unadorned diction. The language is often too explicit, too direct, too bold 
to be evocative or suggestive, that quality of metaphorical elusiveness, which most Chinese poets cherish and seek to incorporate into their verse. And I think that so perfectly describes what I could not put into words at the time, which is this is long and this is explicit and this is obvious and so direct. How is this any good? And I think it took me wrapping my mind around the story to then go back and understand it and go, oh, that's what makes it so beautiful. I love works that you have to go over more than once to get all the goodies out of. You really do. I mean, every time I re- I haven't read Journey to the West uh, in its entirety in a while. I really need to do so again. Uh, so what I want to read for you here is uh, two poems from chapter 35. This comes from one of my favorite little stories in Journey to the West. I'm a little biased because this involves Golden Horn and Silver Horn, two monsters that were actually adapted in filler materials, so like buffer extra stories in the TV series of the original Dragon Ball. There's a gourd where if you say your name, you get sucked in versus if you don't say your name, you get sucked in. Like They changed a couple little details about it when adapting it over to Dragon Ball. But uh, So the first poem I'm going to read for you here is this is later in the chapter. It's as a demon sends out an army of monsters after Wukong. And this is the poem that describes the demon himself. His helmet's tassel shimmered on his head, and from his belt fresh, radiant colors rose. He wore a cuirass knit like dragon scales, topped with a long red cape like crackling flames. His round eyes opened wide and lightning flashed. Wiry whiskers flared up like turbid fumes. His hand held lightly the seven-star sword, his shoulder half-hidden by the palm-leaf fan. He moved like clouds rushing past the ocean's peaks. Like thunder, his voice shook mountains and streams. An awesome, heaven-defying warrior, leading many monsters, he stormed out of his cave. So you get this long bit of poetry simply describing what he looks like, what he sounds like, in some cases what he smells like, how it feels to be around him. This is that descriptive poetry in Journey to the West. Again, it's so direct, it's so obvious, it's so explicit, but you truly get an understanding like, I, I don't need a TV series or a movie adaptation of Journey to the West because it's so perfectly playing in my head as I read these. True that. That was I, I, I have to admit, I don't remember that one, <laughs> but it's uh, that is that there's some detail in that. You don't need any extra. Yeah. So let me read one more for you. And this is a poem that details uh, the beginning of the battle between this monster and then Wukong himself. So the monster is coming in with his just amazing presence and this sword here. The seven-star sword and the golden-hooped rod clashed, and sparks flared up like lightning bright. The spreading cold air brought oppressive chill as vast dark clouds concealed the peaks and cliffs. This one, because of his fraternal bond, would not let up a bit. That one, on account of the scripture monk, would not slow down one whit. Each one hated with the same kind of hate. Both parties cherished such hostility. They fought till heaven and earth darkened, scaring gods and ghosts. The sun dimmed, the smoke thickened, as dragons and tigers quaked. This one ground his teeth like filing down jade nails. That one grew so mad the flames leaped out of his eyes. Back and forth they showed their heroic might and kept on brandishing both sword and rod. Again, I mean, you know every detail of what they look like, what they feel like, what that battle looks like. And that's that's what I it love. It very, very saying, kicking the crap out of another saying too. <laughs> right? You can see where they pull the inspiration from a little bit there. I just had a great image in my head of Goku punching Vegeta in the face. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
you, you totally see it. And that's something that Toriyama, as a, a comic artist, was able to do, not with the written word, but mm. with the panel layout on the page. Something I love about Toriyama as an author, as an artist, was he didn't really do shading on the pages. It was either uncolored or it was colored in completely black. There really wasn't much in between, except for the occasional color page here and there. Um, That's something kind of unique to manga in Japan. traditionally published on really terrible quality papers, disposable until the collected edition. So it's black and white. And his ability to frame on a page the visual equivalent of that poetry from Journey to the West, that's but one little piece of what makes him such a genius, I think. Oh, he's fantastic in many ways. I've bought books and video games simply because his name is on them. Yep. (laughs) You're part of the problem. Me too. (laughs) It says Akira Toriyama that I want that. You yeah. don't know. You don't know what it is. No, I know enough. Like you're, <laughs> That's you're all saying. I need to know. Yep. Um. So you've seen a bunch of the. You mentioned filler content earlier. You've seen some some of the different dubs and and productions. I've. I imagine. Oh yeah, of course. Uh, you know, when the series was first brought, oh, not first brought, but secondarily brought to America uh, in 1995 by a company called Funimation. Uh, took them another year. They moved on to a later portion called Dragon Ball Z in 1996. Uh, that's when I first discovered it airing in syndication on American television. Uh, and just by the very nature of it not being available, I saw out the Japanese version, and that's when I truly fell in love with it. That being said, of course, I've seen uh, the English dub at the time. I've investigated other dubs. The Mexican dub is always held up uh, on a pedestal, and for good reason. And there's some other good dubs out there. I, I'm completely unfamiliar with that dub. What makes that one so special? The Mexican-Spanish dub uh, was just produced at the right time. It had wonderful voice casting. It had an accurate script. Unlike the American dub, it kept the original musical score. Uh, When you watch the Mexican dub of Dragon Ball Z, it's uh, up until maybe even still feels the closest to watching it in Japanese. I I think that's a true achievement. Yes, it is. I just started watching uh, when Super First came out. I was like, I don't want to wait. I'm going to watch it Japanese. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I was like, wait a minute. Some of these voices I like a lot better. Some of them I don't. Um, like Trunks, Chibi Trunks, Little Trunks. Yep, yep. In Japan, I can't stand his voice. Uh, Takashi Kusao, he plays both the older and the younger version of the character. So, yeah, it's a little bit of doing a voice. That's the thing. Whenever there's a new version of it, we all come to shows. And then when we check out other shows with our own preconceptions, our own historical knowledge and preferences, everyone's got an opinion, just like everyone's got a rear end. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Overall, the, the differences in voice don't you know rub me the one particular way or another. But Trunks is a child. I like, like him better when he speaks English because the voice actor is obviously different. Um, I, I had a question. That actually, I, I didn't. One of my friends did. Uh, a friend of mine wants to know you having the reason I asked if you've seen a bunch of dubs is mm-hmm. because he wants to know what to you is the most jarring censorship, censorship thing that changed when it came to America. That's a tough question because what they were doing at the time to the show in 1996 is very different from what they did even just three years later when it was in an after-school time slot. Uh, I think one of my favorite examples, they, in the second season of syndication in uh, 97-98, randomly... One weekend, they were doing that actually as an hour long block, which was people talk about how the show took off on Toonami. Like, I'm sorry, in 97, 98 on syndication on American television in a world pre Pokemon, Dragon Ball Z got a Saturday, Sunday morning, hour long block. Anyway, just a little thing I want to put out there. 
Yeah. Uh, one weekend, suddenly, after one of the new episodes was a completely random, different, very different looking episode. Turns out they did a three part version of the third Dragon Ball Z film randomly toward the end of season two. And because that was part of the syndication run, it was heavily edited. Uh, there's a scene toward the very, very end of the movie where Gohan, uh, the main character's uh, first son, transforms into a big monkey. Perhaps you remember monkeys from Journey to the West. Anyway, so he transforms from a big monkey back to his child form. Obviously, he doesn't, have, doesn't have any clothes on. Uh, there's a scene in the TV broadcast. I don't know why they didn't simply cut out this scene. It's inconsequential. It has nothing to do with anything. He just gets up in his little new dragon friend is there. He's like, ah, hi. But because he's naked, he turns around his dinky's hanging out. Instead of simply cutting that five second scene, they painted a bush in front of Gohan. I think I remember that. <laughs> and just because of the time with analog digital work on CRTs for analog broadcast TV, the bush kind of moves around a little bit. And it looks super bizarre. And I think that's my favorite example of why didn't you simply just cut those frames out? That's awesome. Thank you for feeling that. He's going to love that. Yeah. So we really are about at the half hour here. But uh, I ask every guest this, and I'll feel really weird if I don't ask you. Yeah. What's your favorite word or sound? I always thought that what's your favorite color was too easy. I came prepared. Excellent. I am loading up the soundboard on my phone right now. I think this is going to come across in, in the recording. I won't hear it, but you'll hear it. And if not, well, I'll just send you the file. So my secret, not so secret, second love, and I would be running the equivalent of this for the show had I not already been doing it for Dragon Ball, is Futurama. It is what I do not watch Dragon Ball anymore, despite running the only largest website for it, but I watch Futurama literally every single day and have done so for an extended period of time. Uh, I absolutely love Billy West, who plays the main character, Philip J. Fry. Mm -hmm. There is uh, an episode in the, actually the first season of the show. It's an episode all about a, a giant pile of garbage out in space that's coming back to Earth. And the, prof the professor has made a smelloscope that allows you to smell distant objects in space. And that's where a great joke comes around where they no longer call the planet Uranus. They call it Erectum which I think is one of the most brilliant jokes in the history of ever. <laughs> but later on, Fry goes and uses this smelloscope to just seek around out in space. And this, I'm sorry for what I'm about to play. This is the sound that Billy West makes. <laughs> did that come through? Yeah, I did. All right. <laughs> that, I think is the epitome of like method acting. I can only imagine in my mind, Billy West in the studio recording that sound. I think that is one of the most impressive bits of acting I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> you know, go to think of it that it must have been something to see. Yeah. yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, on a closing note, is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't? My thought would have been, and you actually kind of led with this, which is, you know, what keeps me going after all this time? Uh, I mentioned inertia. I started small and I'm still doing it. Um, what I love is learning new things. And yes, I run a website and yes, I maintain a community and yes, I produce a podcast and all the things that go along with running Consensu, but I love learning. And what keeps me going is I've read the comic. I've watched the TV show. And yeah, there's a new show coming on. And there's new stuff to learn with Super. But I love learning new 
old things. And I think that's the bread and butter of Konzenshu. That's something we do, A, that no one else does, and B, better than anyone else ever has, does, or ever will. I, I don't mind saying that because I, I know it to be true, and I'm really proud of that. You should be. Konzenshu is a monumentous achievement. It's incredible. Thank you. Um, we, all, all four of us, love learning things about the show. I think that provides you more so, and I've gone at length about this, more so than arguing about the relative strength of one character to another. That doesn't teach you anything new about anything. That's just waving your ding-dong around. I love, even if it's just a little comment that a producer, that an author made somewhere at some time, that frames that chapter, that episode, that movie, that arc for me in some kind of way. And that's learning something new. And that's what keeps me going is that I've been running my website. We're coming up on 20 years. I still learn something new, maybe not every day, but amazingly enough, close to it at this point. And that's what I want everyone to do. I, I talked earlier about how Julian's a student of language. Uh, it just, I want everyone <laughs> always be learning, be a community of learners. And I think that's going to make the world a better place. Agreed. So before I let you go, I've, I've heard something in the past. And if I, if I know anybody who can, who can confirm or deny that I've heard that Akira is incredibly forgetful. Is that true? <laughs> yes and no. It, it's become a meme unto itself. That is not necessarily true. There are absolutely instances of him saying, well, shit, I don't remember that. <laughs> One of the most famous was he, uh, I believe it's, an interview between Akira Toriyama mm -hmm. and Eiichiro Oda, who's the author of One Piece. It was a joint interview with the two of them in the first uh, major art collection book for One Piece. Oda took so much inspiration from Toriyama, it made sense to interview the two together. And Oda was a fanboy of Toriyama, so he's discussing all these different things. And Oda's like, oh, this character. And Toriyama's like... Who? <laughs> and I, I want to say it was Tao Pai Pai, who's the character earlier on the series, comes back at some point, later using filler. But it's that kind of thing where Toriyama has said that when he finishes something, he moves on. He pushes it out of his mind. Because if that's still kicking around, and I love this about him, if that's still kicking around, that doesn't give you more brain space, new brain space to do and try new things. So sometimes that's that's going to mean that you forget a, a character. A, a most recent example was as he was rereading the story in the lead up to new movies and super and some other stuff. He confused two of the later transformations with the golden hair. And he was like, Oh, I thought that was two. I thought that was three. I didn't, remember that one and i think there's actually a logical explanation for it because if you go by the manga itself level two was never really a big deal that much and, and in fact didn't get named until way later after it was first introduced people expect the author to have intricate knowledge of every minute little detail and that's just not true and as much as he's the author and we've come to see that he loves his series and he really owns his characters at the end of the day it, it is still a job and he's admitted that he only got into doing this for money in the first place i think we gotta cut him a little bit of slack yeah. so there are instances it's not like he's done it for a week he's done it for ages right right i mean again Dragon Ball started in 1984. He had already completed his famous work by that point. So I... I've read a little bit of Dr. Slump. That's some funny stuff. It is funny. <laughs> I, I continue to say that 
until you read Dr. Slump, you actually don't fully understand Dragon Ball either. I, I think it's essential to understanding what kind of an author he is. So I have a, a plot question that a friend of mine asked. Okay. Shoot. He came up with it. He's actually here being incredibly silent. In life. <laughs> Hello. Uh, and he asked, he asked me to ask you this. Where does Trunk's sword come from? And I said, Tapion. And he went, not canon, fit movie character. And I went, true that. Yeah. But, but lack of canon doesn't mean lack of existence necessarily. Right. So he wants you to tell him where <laughs> Tapion, where Trunk's sword comes from. All right. Well, we got to jump back in time. So when Trunk shows up, he's just got a sword. He just That's has true. it. He just has it. We don't know where it came from. So the original 13 films for Dragon Ball Z, they do exist as like this alternate scenario. That, that's what they were made for. They were made as what if stories. They aired as double, sometimes even triple features at uh, festivals during school breaks in Japan. And oh. their, their purpose was to just kind of like get kids in, have a fun time. Kid, I mean, every kid knew Dragon Ball, of course, because it was massive, but it would air alongside like Slam Dunk and Dinku and some other stuff that Toei was working on. And they just wanted the movies to be standalone stories that anyone could jump into and kind of get the gist of who these characters are at that point in time. So that being said, the movie you're referencing was actually the last major Dragon Ball Z film before the series kind of went away for a while, the 13th movie. In that movie, the younger present day Trunks receives a sword from that movie's character. And at that point, it's kind of like, oh, that's a neat little homage. Maybe that Trunks got that sword from that character. And that's separate from the alternate timeline Trunks. It's just a cute little nod. However, the ending theme for that movie starts playing footage of the future Trunks killing Frieza with the sword. So it's kind of like, eh, eh, see what we did there? <laughs> <laughs> so like they don't say anything, but they're kind of implying something or are they? Who knows? So maybe it's just a what if scenario. Take it as you will. Right. It, it's really he's just got a sword. And quite frankly, the sword breaks a few times. So. That's true. That was what my friend said. I said, Tapion sword. He went, yeah, but it broke. Right. <laughs> I, said, I said it was a sword, not a magic sword. Right. And it breaks, I don't know, earlier, but later, uh, how you want to classify yeah. things. In um, movie nine, I think it is, against Kokua, it, it breaks. So, I don't know. He's got lots of different trunks have different swords and they tend to break. Yeah. There's the one, I forget which number movie it was, the one with the, the super android, the one that kind of looks like a redneck. Oh, yeah. It breaks in there, too, doesn't it? Yeah, it breaks in there, too. Yeah. yeah. I just figure his mother is Bulma. She has it fixed. Yeah, right? I mean, there's probably, just like Goku has a closet full of orange outfits, Trunks has a That's closet right. full of swords. <laughs> he's got, yeah, he's, he's got a closet full of gi and a suit because Chi-Chi makes him have one. It, it's an RPG. He's got a blacksmith over in the corner somewhere. It's just a vendor that he goes to. He, he pays the hundred zenny and the blacksmith fixes his sword. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Yeah. That we really are running out of time. I could talk to you for hours. But, I mean, I got all the time in the world, but I understand you want to keep a show to a <laughs> to a palatable amount. So thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, you got it, man. Thanks again. You've been listening to Long Thoughts with Baloo. Do you create? Know someone who does? Have ideas or feedback? Contact Baloo at radiobaloo at gmail.com. That's R-A-D-I-O-B-A-L-O-O at G-M-A-I-L dot C-O-M.